Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Welcome back to another episode of the Historians on Housewives. I'm Casey. What's up? It's Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> and Max, still trying to come up with my hip tagline. Max on the ones and the twos. The ones, the twos, sometimes the threes. <laughs> heavy episode today talking about grief and loss um, both of personal loved ones and within the context of the Armenian genocide so to get into this episode today I thought that we would actually share with you really how I came to know Jessica because it's directly related to conversations about loss and grief. So I was taking a seminar on 19th century U.S. slavery with Jessica in the winter of 2016. We had just come back from the holiday break, and we were only in our second week of seminar meetings, and... Jessica, I mean, if you know Jessica, you know that she just really picks up on emotion, um, that it's kind of this really amazing, uncanny ability she has to really read people, even pretty much complete strangers like I was to her. And she could tell that I was not okay, which was really amazing because it had only been my second time ever sitting in a room with her. Um, and she actually approached me after class that night, and she asked if I was okay. And I explained to her that 
my papa, my grandfather, had gone into the ICU and it didn't really look very good. And I was, you know, wanting to go home to be there, but that I, I felt like I couldn't because I'm finishing coursework and it's a new term. And I just thought it would look terrible to all of the professors I was supposed to see that week in only the second week of the term. And do you remember what you told me, Jessica? Go. I remember I told you go. That's what I remember saying. Did I say something else? <laughs> After you said go, you said you only get one chance to go. Right. And you know how I know this? I know this because when I was doing a dissertation, no, when I was doing coursework, UCLA, my grandmother um, chose not to go to further dialysis. She was the love of my life. And the weekend she was dying, I was concerned with writing a paper and I didn't go. So now my response to everyone is go. And, and I, I looked at you and I said, but what about the other professors? And you said, if there's a problem, I can take care of it for you. And I don't remember saying that. I don't remember any of this. It was so very compassionate in a way that really, really took me off guard to have that level of compassion when, especially as graduate students, you know, and, and there's this emphasis on, you know, you know, just working, 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 you know, kind of like nose to the grind, um, almost in some, in some ways, almost like being less human and more robotic about how you go through your day to day. And I was so instantly shocked and touched by this very compassionate human understanding and and even just like your ability to almost have like a spider-man sense of like <laughs> this person is hurting and, and is in need and I went and uh you know two days later my papa was was dead I was on a plane to come back here and and I was so grateful and thankful, even to this day, that you did what you did and that you had that kind of emotional sensitivity about those around you. And it was actually continued to be a very um, compassionate experience when I returned and trying to, you know, catch up and talk with one of the other faculty members for a course I had missed that week. It turned out that he had fairly recently lost his mother. And so this other faculty member was also just so human and so kind. And it was this moment where I thought, wow, we just always hear about work, 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 work. But academics are also people and they're sensitive people and they're caring people. And that we really do live full lives that are marked by all the same kinds of things that everybody else's are, even if we try to pretend that it's all about work all of the time. And so, you know, since then, I've, I've thought of Jessica as being one of the most compassionate, empathetic people that I know. And, like, with such a great sensitivity to picking up a, about, you know, these kind of emotions around her. I mean, I don't want to steal Casey's thunder, but what struck me in that class was she was quiet. And that is like unheard of of her in a class. So I knew her, something was off about her rhythm. 
I mean, she would participate, but she she just didn't have that energy. Um, so I knew something was off. I should also say that in terms of being human in the academy, I had a great role model, mentor, dissertation advisor, Brenda Stevenson at UCLA, and she always checks in, even to this day, how are you, how are you feeling? How was your family? So she kind of inculcated in, to me, in me and others that she trained to actually be human because when you walk away from the work, you really don't have anything. So you need to spend time loving your family, building your life, and doing whatever you can to have balance outside of the academy. Yeah. So with that, we're going to start a little differently today. We're going to put the Bravo News update at the beginning of the show, mainly because this show is so heavy and it sounds disingenuous and clunky and insensitive to Mm -hmm. kind of put it at the end of this very serious conversation. Mm -hmm. So with that... The Bravo News. So Tori Spelling is allegedly really upset that she has yet to be asked to join the cast of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because, you know, she grew up in Beverly Hills, uh, Beverly Hills 90210. And so she thinks she should really be somebody, allegedly, to come on in the loss of LVP. So on one, in one sense, I agree that Tori, you know, might be a, a missed star that we're not putting on the cast. In another way, I feel like she's already um, showed us so many things about her life in different reality series. And the public's not interested. Public's not interested in her and Dean anymore. They're not, they're just not interested. I mean, I think Tori is a tragic figure for so many reasons, but... I feel like it's almost like when you write a book or when you're writing a book, the editors say or you're told, don't publish too many articles on the book because the book will have no value. I feel like we've seen so many articles about Tori Spelling that I don't know if I need her memoir. So many iterations of Tori Spelling. So many iterations. I mean, that's, but um, bum, nose jobs alone, but um, bum. (laughs) You can edit that out. The other piece of Bravo news that I have came from the weekend. Um, apparently, people are already in uproar because Jax was spotted without his wedding ring on. He had a moving truck. He was moving stuff. He was on his little powerized little ice chest scooter thing, and his wedding ring was not on. So uh, it doesn't necessarily seem like there's trouble in paradise. Jax... Uh, has been taking some heat because he blocked a bunch of his uh, Vanderpump Rules co-stars from, like, Instagram. And uh, Jax had some comment on Twitter about how uh, when people were perfect, he would take their criticism. And then Captain Lee kind of trolled him back, uh, saying, well, I guess that means you're not taking advice from anybody then. But I found Captain Lee to be so funny in that moment. He's a quick-witted guy um so anyway you know i you know on one hand it's jacks so it could be rocky already after two months of marriage i'm sure that'll be an interesting stat if we ever play our living on love again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um on the other hand he has a bunch of jewels in his wedding ring and if he's on his power eyes little ice chest maybe he's going to the <laughs> pool or the beach if he's by a moving truck maybe he's moving stuff you know they kind of you don't necessarily, I mean, Max and I take our rings off all the time to 
if we're moving things or going to water. I mean, I would assume Jax is heading to water on Wait, his me, powerized ice chest Let me scooter. make sure I get this right. So you're saying the Jax. I'm saying it could be anyway. I'm, I'm his, saying. His, you're, you're saying the Jax <laughs> may not have a marriage that's in trouble. It could be. I mean, you never know. It could be. But no, Dan. Jax can have a marriage that's in trouble and took his wedding ring off for completely different reasons. Okay. Terms. Yeah, that's Thank what I'm saying. There, there could be a lot of there could be a lot of things going on. Yeah. Okay. But it was it was, you know, the article itself was just like trouble in paradise. Jack's already spotted without his wedding ring. They just need to sell um click. right. They just right. need people to click. That's not I wouldn't right. put too much stock. So today's guest on Historians on Housewives is Nora Lesserson, and she is a PhD candidate in U.S. history at University College London. She earned her AM in Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University and her AB in the Study of Religion at Harvard College. She uses the life writing and life narratives of Armenian Americans to examine themes such as nationalism, belonging, identity, and representation. She has published articles on her great-grandfather's memoir of the Armenian Genocide and on texts written by a man named Christopher Oskinian, who is also the topic of her dissertation. Welcome, Nora Lesserson. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Would you like to share with everybody your housewife's tagline? I, I can. Um, be careful what you say. I might write about it in the future. I love that. That is so good. Very sassy for a historian. <laughs> yeah, it seems to work. So how did you get into the housewives and how do they shape your life as a Bravo Demic, which is our term for scholars who do Bravo? So um, I think I remember watching, I uh, was thinking about this, and I remember watching the real world as, you know, a fifth grader, a sixth grader, a seventh grader, uh, when it was pretty much the coolest thing ever. And I remember actually talking to our music teacher in sixth grade about the real world Hawaii, I think. And she was both horrified that we watched this, but also really excited to be talking to someone, to someone even if they were 12, about it. So in terms of Housewives, I think when Real Housewives of New Jersey came out, because I'm from North Jersey, I felt like, oh, I can watch basically the real world North Jersey. Um, I, I didn't. I have to say I did not watch the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Um, from Real Housewives of New Jersey, I branched out pretty quickly to Real Housewives of New York, um, Orange County, Beverly Hills, and Miami, uh, which I missed. I've always just found it a great way to unwind and um, regroup. You know, I think we all kind of get off center throughout our days and returning to something familiar that has been with us for so many years at this point can be pretty powerful um, and centering. So Housewives and actually like British and international detective shows and true crime shows are a way for me to keep kind of using that observant part of my brain, which never really shuts off and which I, I enjoy using, but also to completely step away from what's regular or normal to me. Um, it feels like watching extremes of humanity, which I think that means there's a little bit of anthropology going on there for me. <laughs> Two follow-up questions. One, yeah, how is watching Real Housewives of New Jersey uh, similar to or different from what it was actually like to live in Jersey? And the second question <laughs> is, did that mean you also were into Dirty John when it came to Bravo? <laughs> so to answer the first question, it's very different. I can't say I relate, but 
But I also, and I talked with this about um, actually another professor once who grew up in Atlanta, and we said, you know, it, it's not familiar, but it's like you can kind of say, yeah, you know, that also, I can, I can, I remember that I relate to that. And so there are just some times where it's like you're in the house, um, you know, at say five o'clock with a family, and you can just kind of see New Jersey out the window, and it just does feel like home. And it's a little bit alarming, but also a little bit nice. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of, that is kind of fun. And then in terms of the other show, I actually, I don't know about that show. Oh, so Dirty John actually <laughs> is great stuff. Dirty John actually is a true story of something that happened to this woman in Orange County, in Irvine, really not Irvine and Newport, right Irvine, where Newport, we are, like right where campus is here. And so it was this kind of scumbag guy who was in and out of prison, who was like a really violent guy who, um, it was kind of like, um, Vicky and Brooks's relationship in a lot of ways. Where okay, it, got it. Yeah. But if Brooks actually tried to kill somebody, Oh, my God. <laughs> right. The guy totally scammed this woman, um, had her moving away from her kids. It was very Vicks, uh, Brooks and Vicky. Vicks very. Is kind of just how I... Minus, <laughs> minus yes. the fact no, that he, he, tried to, he tried to kill her, her kids, her daughter. He tried to kill her daughter. Her daughter retaliated. Are we supposed to give that much away in case people... I mean, it's oh been out listen, for a long time. Listen, it was an LA Times piece. <laughs> it's a it podcast. Was an, it was an LA Times piece. It was a podcast, and then it was a Bravo movie, and now it's running on reruns so yeah. if oh you don't God. know dirty john like missing this feels like missing the obvious source that everyone like reads your paper and so you really should have <laughs> but yeah if you're into true crime i mean it's like one yeah. of those stories where because of the vixen vicky and brooks i just want to make them like one item now but because of the vicky and brooks story i was like oh yeah this totally happened right here in orange (laughs) county um but it was Uh, it was terrible and weird and she had so many opportunities to get out but like yeah you know but the blinders were on it was very it was very vicky and brooks that's very interesting i'll have to look it up yes that ends with someone like actually dying, and I we won't say that okay, part, so right? And we can talk about the pathology of when you become a woman of a certain age, and this might be right. one of your only options, and the lies she told herself. So, yeah. I mean, I would I would start with the L.A. Times story first. Okay, we'll do it on it. Deep dive. <laughs> um, one of your favorite Bravo celebrities is Bethany Frankel. How do you feel about her Roni exit? And can you talk to us a little bit about? who your other top two Bravo celebrities are and why? So I'm sad for myself, but I'm happy for Bethany. You know, I think we all have our public times and our private times that serve their different purposes. Um, But also there's a chance she'll be back again. She tends to go away and come back. And I was thinking if she's going to be spending more time in the Boston area, I for a long time really wanted there to be a Real Housewives of Cambridge or like a Real Housewives of Harvard. So that would just be a real draw for me personally, um, if anyone from Bravo is listening to this. <laughs> I also have soft spots for um, Tamara Judge and Lisa Rinna. And I do think soft spots is actually the best way for me to think about this question. Because you don't always like everyone, but you have this little soft spot that just always gets you. So I think Tamara, for example, is smarter and nicer than she gives herself credit for, which I find pretty compelling. Um, I always just want her to be happy. 
Okay. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I must editorial interject. Just agree for, or disagree. I, 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 I'm gonna. I'm, I feel like Kanye at this moment. I'm gonna let you finish, but I also would like to hear about some redeemable qualities about Tamara when you're done. I mean, I guess the question for me is, I mean, I'll give it like Tamara is a smart cookie. Like she, she is. She's uh, yeah. she's made it years on the show for a reason. Mm-hmm. But I suppose but. I I wonder I wonder how to kind of square that that perspective that she might be kinder and nicer than she gives herself credit for with mm-hmm. you know the relationship trouble she has with her daughter Sydney and also kind of you know in the recent weeks she's kind of been an apologist for Ryan's white supremacy after he yeah. threatened his ex-wife with a gun <laughs> um, yeah. and has had a lot of you know horrible racist rhetoric that's gotten him kicked off of social media and everything and so I was just kind of wondering how all of this fits together yeah I mean those are good questions it also kind of fits into her obsession with defense of Vicky who I don't think is a good person at all and so I it to me it must express a different part of her personality that I haven't quite nailed I mean there's something about her that is scared maybe of rejection or confrontation even though I know that we all have seen her in many confrontational positions but I think there's some sort of victimhood about her I don't know what it is these are all really valid points I don't have a good answer for you (laughs) that's okay I just think she's in pain and you know like I think a lot of her behavior comes from that place I, I could I could see that Tamara's probably I mean for many seasons Tamara's probably carried a lot of pain. Mm. So yeah. I would agree with that. And I feel like you know they say it all the time on the show, and to an extent, it's pretty true that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Well, then she's really hurt. Yeah. I mean, she. Ha- I mean, yeah. She's. I mean, she's had a rough go, but right. I'm sorry. What was the question? I was. We were trying to figure out. We were trying to be like, well, like, kind of like round out this Tamara person. Um, also, did you hear that Bethany Frankel's divorce to her um, not ex husband hasn't finalized yet because of the restraining orders? So she's still technically married to Jason Hoppy. That poor woman. Yeah, that's pretty crazy to me. So is she in a bigamist relationship then? Because she just married Boston guy. No, she actually didn't marry Boston guy. That tweet that she wrote about her being the only married woman on the show was her referencing the fact that she still can't get her divorce from Jason Hoppy. Oh, oh my gosh. I know. That's pretty bad. Remember when Jason came on the scene? It was, you know, he was dashing. He was good looking. Everyone was excited. They have the show. And later we find out. Oh, he was a terror behind the scenes. And I just think that that story is also very tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I watched those two spinoffs also, and I just, they didn't click to me ever. Um, So I wasn't fully surprised, but I was certainly, that they didn't work out, but I was totally surprised by how much of a nightmare it became. You know what couple really clicks to me, and I always enjoy watching them, and this brings us to your point on Lisa Renna. I love Lisa Renna with Harry Hamlin, and I love that she calls yes. him Harry Hamlin. Oh, absolutely. No. That's absolutely. my favorite point. And yes, so the other housewife I have a soft spot for is Lisa Renna, and I think I just like, yeah, her, she says Harry Hamlin. I love her voice. 
<laughs> I love her so much more as a housewife than I did on Days of Our Lives. I'm a Days of Our Lives yeah. devotee. Um, or at least I was at one point. But I love her so much more on Real Housewives. I just, you know, I couldn't really get with her as Billy. I just got to be honest with you. But her and Harry Hamlin, I think that's the couple in it to win it. Yeah. The I'm other thing is that you just, I really have to, like, give it to her for her hustle. Like, she yeah. has made, like, you know... That depends money. And is right. happy. She said she would wear it depends all the time if she had to, to make the money. I mean, you got to give her some yeah. credit for, for being honest about, like, this is how you survive in Hollywood. Tell us a little bit about watching the testimonials on the Housewives franchises. How can they help us understand your work, and how do they help you think about the people you write about in new ways? Okay, so these testimonials, which I guess also for me go back to the real world, uh, can really under the underline the value of life writing theory, which is a pretty big part of my work on the writings of Armenian Americans who moved from Turkey between the 1830s and the 1930s. Uh, by life writing theory, I mean theory that analyzes self narratives or narratives about oneself. So I know when a lot of us watch Real Housewives testimonials, we're constantly thinking about, you know, what are they saying and why? What have they been told to say? How have their words been edited? What are they not saying? Are they lying to us? Are they lying to themselves? Like I know you mentioned earlier. Uh, life writing theory in many ways asks the same things of the authors of any kind of life narrative. So why did the author select these words and not others? Who is funding the author? And how does that affect what they're saying? Um, have the author's views changed over time? So ultimately, testimonies of personal experience whether by Real Housewives or Armenians from Turkey and America, can be read as expressions of identity. So Paul John Eakin, for example, who's um, a scholar of English, I believe, has written a lot about the self as a narrative, which is similar to um, you know, Judith Butler's notion of gender performance. So like the self, the identity, is um, in an important way a narrative that we tell that adheres to social rules and expectations and keeps, you know, becoming over time. So that's why it's especially important to question and analyze the motives and choices and editing of the author or the housewife. Uh, the better we do this, the better we can see who they are and who they are saying they are and who they're, who they're telling us they are. Well, I think that people don't realize that that's actually, you know, exactly what historians do. Whatever right. people are seeing on these testimonials, I think you dis distilled it quite accurately, that we always have to read against, hmm, did this storyline change from document to document? Or we need to be attentive to the kind of self-crafting that people are doing when they do interviews. Even when they write down in their, their journal, there's a level of self-crafting especially if some people like um, if there's public journals, for example, a presidential journal or even a plantation journal where someone might read it one day, there is this, this process of, of crafting of the self. So, so I exactly. get it. I, I like the connection. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> great job. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So you research and write about testimonies related to the Armenian genocide and the lives of Armenian Americans. And so I was wondering if you could start by telling us and stating for the audience as concretely as possible, what was the Armenian genocide and why are there people who deny that it happened? Okay, so the Armenian genocide was basically a systematic series of policies, including massacres, deportations, and forced conversions to Islam 
that targeted the Armenian Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire during the course of World War One. And so World War One was between 1914 and 1918. Um, the classic start date of the Armenian genocide was, was 1915. So to put it very simply, the Ottoman government, which was losing so much territory over the course of the centuries to groups like the Greeks and other Balkan groups, was basically paranoid that the Armenian subjects of the empire would join together and do the same. So to preempt this, they, they sought to eliminate enough of the Armenian population such that they would no longer be a meaningful presence in the Ottoman territory. Uh, when all was said and done, most estimates say that roughly one million Armenians, or about half of the total population, were killed. The Republic of Turkey still rejects the term genocide, I assume because it's it's bad to have committed genocide. Um, the United States also does not officially recognize the Armenian genocide as a genocide because Turkey is seen as a key U.S. ally. So Barack Obama, for example, as a presidential candidate, promised to recognize the Armenian genocide, um, that is to use the word genocide. But as president, he ultimately um, did not do so. So fortunately, a lot of serious scholarly work has been written to historically document the components of the Armenian genocide and its aftermath. The scholarly consensus is that genocide did occur. Um, if you're looking to learn more, books by Raymond Kavorkian, Tanner Akcham, Ronald Sini, and Lerna Ekmekdiolu are, are a good place to start. What are some of the implications of the U.S.'s policy of denying the genocide? Um, if you in could. what sort of... Yeah. If you, <laughs> so the sorry, go ahead. For whom? I mean, the, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to flesh out, I guess, the question a little bit. So... Mm-hmm implications in terms of in terms of the Armenian community would be that it's very hard for a community, a traumatized community to heal even generations later if the the um the act itself is not recognized and valued as what you know it it is to be. Um that's one way in which that's one implication, I suppose. For Turkey, of course, the the United States not recognizing it means they can continue to not recognize it themselves. There's a clip from Keeping Up with the Kardashians from season 10 where they address life without their father and dealing with genocide denial as they have traveled to Armenia to recognize the 100th anniversary of the Armenian genocide. We're on our way to the genocide memorial and we are so humbled to get this opportunity to learn about our history, the genocide in Armenia, and just pay my respects. Yeah, I'm director of Memorial Complex. Hi, Chloe. Welcome. Nice Welcome. to see you. Hi, nice to My meet you. My name is Suren. Nice to meet you. Cizernak Memorial Complex is dedicated to one of million victims of Armenian genocide. You know, Armenian genocide was not just killing. It was attempt to destroy Armenian civilization. And it's story of human life. Of course, when we say one and a half million, it's a faceless number. But you can imagine that it was one plus one plus one plus one, and everybody had his plans, had his dreams for this life. It was always so important to my dad to understand about the genocide. He always talked about it when we were growing up and just being here. It was a little bit overwhelming just because it really does just put everything into perspective when you think about how many people were killed and how many lives this affected. Just even right now, like the pink clouds and everything, it's just really powerful. 
It's such a beautiful memorial. It just takes your breath away. It is unbelievable to think that it's been a hundred years of people denying that this genocide ever happened. And I'm proud to bring awareness to the issue. My ancestors, they went through so much. And I really hope that one day America will recognize it. What is happening in this moment? And how does it speak to teaching trauma, narrative, grief, and identity in the classroom? What can we learn here about personal and shared grief? So in this clip, um, as you say, Kim and her sister Chloe have traveled to Armenia for the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, which was commemorated on April 24, 2015. Uh, their trip, in part, served as a way to champion um, Armenian genocide recognition. Kim's political agendas are also an interesting topic for future discussion. I know my friend Amy wants to hear more about this topic down the road. Um, Kim mentions here that it was always so important to my dad to understand about the genocide. You know, he always talked about it when we were growing up. So as any Kardashian fan will know, the loss of their father, Robert Kardashian, looms very large in their memories and their world of meaning. And throughout the episode, Kim and Chloe both make repeated references to their father and um, what the trip would mean to him. It's really impossible for them to separate Armenia, their Armenian myths, and even the Armenian genocide uh, from him. Which, to my mind, brings us to the topic of grief and how it relates to personal narrative and identity. So as we talked about earlier with self-narratives as identities, the grief process can also be seen as a process of continual identity uh, recreation. So Tony Walter, a sociologist of death, I think in modern society, sums it up nicely when he describes the grief process as creating a durable biography that entails moving on with as well as without the deceased. So this is opposed to um, many understandings of grief, which is that it's just moving on without the person or getting used to them not being there. But really, um, as Walter says, it's as much about finding new ways post-death to incorporate the memory of the idea of um, the impact of the dead person in your new life without them. This, to me, is true for both personal losses on the individual level and for communal losses, as in the case of the Armenian genocide. So in this light, by engaging with Armenia and commemorating the Armenian genocide, Kim and Chloe are also engaging with and commemorating their father. Um, their self-narratives of these engagements are then a part of their grief process. So, you know, the ways in which they, as sisters, the sisters continue to develop their identities with as well as without their father. Although he is absent, you know, he still has a role in their life, and they still have an identity that is made up by um, both his absence and his presence in their lives. Can you also talk to us maybe about this issue of shared grief in this 100th anniversary of recognizing the Armenian genocide in Armenia? Yeah, so shared grief um, is in many ways a form of identity and identity creation as well. So particularly for a community like the Armenians who have... Um, been forced from their homeland 
where they would normally have all forms of sort of, you know, historical and cultural connection that goes back generations, they have to cohere around new forms of um, sort of communal identity in diaspora. So one actually important way of doing this has been the Armenian genocide because of the shared experience, even for those who weren't directly implicated. For example, I think um, the Kardashian family, for example, left um, the area before the genocide. So maybe they saw writing on the wall or maybe they saw better opportunity in America, but they, they themselves were actually not a part of the uh, Armenian genocide that we commemorate um, now on April 24th. That said, genocide is still a huge part of their fathers and thus their understanding of what it means to be Armenian. So can we talk a little bit about um, your own family history and research and even the Kardashian trip to Armenia? Um, Talk to us a little bit more about the role that memory and testimony can actually play in nationalism, belonging, identity, and um, representation for generations continuing to live with generational trauma of genocide. Yeah, so... Watching this episode, um, it was really fascinating for me to see how much the Kardashians were learning about their own family history. Um, And I can relate to that experience since I learned most of what I now know about my family's experience in the Armenian genocide and as Armenians in Turkey when I started asking direct questions in my 20s to my grandparents. It turns out that my great-grandfather, my grandfather's father, had written a memoir, which became the topic of my first academic article, actually. And he had also made recordings of himself singing Armenian lullabies for all his granddaughters, um, one of whom was my mother. So he had this real will to testify, and I, I had no idea. Um, my lack of knowledge and the Kardashians' lack of knowledge really speaks volumes about the destruction of genocide then beyond physical death and, and depopulation. By severing these chains of like correct collective and historical memory, as I was talking about earlier, perpetrators of genocide destroy not just the present, but then also the future of the community. And then compounding this destruction um, as a way to move on, traumatized survivors of the genocide might seek, as they did in this instance, to cut ties with their um, Ottoman and Turkish past like by denying their use of the Turkish language or simply by not wanting to talk about painful realities with their young grandchildren. And so we're lucky to have memory works and testimonies such as my great-grandfather's memoir or Robert Kardashian's repeated uh, evocations of the genocide that allow us, um, often generations later, to look back and restore in some way the past. Such, you know, testimonies like this and the engagement with them by descendants, whether whether me or Kim Kardashian, which is a sentence I didn't think I'd say, <laughs> also serve as a way to counter genocide denial and, um, you know, develop a communal identity in diaspora like we were just discussing. Well, I think one of the, the important aspects of, of your work is the fact that you are um, kind of not just utilizing your family's history, but also working with it in a way so that we can not just answer the larger um, historians so what questions, but you are also kind of preserving the past in a particular way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, short of saying this is why history matters. This is also why history matters. When we started thinking about this episode, I was thinking less of the Kardashian trip to um, Armenia and much more about 
the fact that do you remember the Lamar was going to play for Turkey and Lamar mm-hmm. had a hor- you know he he needed he needed a career come up so right. he was going to play for Turkey and that was the first time that Chloe actually said wait a minute let me let me think about what it means if my husband who needs to play ball is going to play for Turkey and it was actually Rob Kardashian who said oh that really isn't a good look I want you know think about this a little a little deeper. And so then right. we actually get this, uh, you know, pilgrimage to Armenia, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I just think it's very interesting that we can have these little moments that can really, once we know a little bit more, can help us also shape how we move in the world. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I want to go back and rewatch that episode because also history then can be used. The more you know, the more you could understand how to sort of say, do something like play for Turkey on your own terms. Um, which I also find a really interesting part of this whole process of engaging with the past. So you can start to understand how maybe you can or cannot engage with Turkey and what it means to do those things. So the more you know, the better you can have those sorts of conversations with yourself and with others. Great. Thank you. So now it's on to the Bonko Party game break. Uh, (laughs) Today's game is called Living on Love. And and we're actually, I'm going to give you um, one, two, three, four, five different Bravo couples. So five points possible. And uh, you, Max, and Jessica are going to rank in order of shortest to longest relationship. Luke and Laura. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) wrong franchise. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and you know, I kind of picked these randomly. And then once I actually looked up the dates from like, marriage to divorce I was like wow this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be um <laughs> and let me let me and just, actually there is there is going to be a I would say that there is a bonus point because one of these couples ooh. the separation month and the divorce month are different but um if you uh-huh. if you can get that oh, one dear. but okay. really most of these are all like start to divorce and there's just one that I gave both to um just because it's very much rubbing up against two other relationships, but they're all kind of pretty much rubbing up against each other in terms of the timeline. I would like to insert a footnote before we begin. Um, (laughs) One of the things I don't think our listeners understand or is conveyed is that Casey comes up with all of these games. Um, I don't know how involved Max is is with the, the conversation, but Casey can just come up with a, a Bonko game in, in seconds. Um, and so I just wanted to give her props that this isn't a collective effort. This is her in her little wheelhouse coming up with these games. Andy, are you listening? <laughs> the funny thing is that Max and I actually celebrate Festivus as in Seinfeld, you know, Festivus for the rest of us. And oh, so, I can talk Seinfeld too. So Max actually plans our Festivus games because that's what we use uh-huh. as our feats of strength. And I have nice. nothing to do with the Festivus games at all. Like I just put the pole up and that's it. And so it's like kind of funny because for the podcast, the games is, uh, he, I don't even tell him what's going on. I just say, yeah, I did the game. It's really better that way because the Festivus games are really designed to annoy people. Like specifically, oh. <laughs> last year we did a game called Festivus Flyover, where it was just p- 
pictures of random cities in the Midwest. Like aerial views. Aerial views. Oh, no. And you had to, like, <laughs> figure out where it was. So one of the photos was, like, a parking structure in Oklahoma City. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. No, so it's better this way. Um, okay. So I'll give you guys some time. I'll, I'll read you off the five couples, and then you can order them. Remember, from shortest to longest. So okay. one would be the shortest, five would be the longest. Yes. Okay. Okay. And here are your five in no particular order. Tom and Luann. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is already funny. Sheena and Mike. Mm. Mike and Jessica from the Shaws of Sunset. Oh. Oh. Portia and Cordell. Mm. And Danielle and Marty. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh boy. Marty. Oh, Marty was the guy she married on the last season of Ranch. <laughs> her 20th fiance. Oh, I think, yeah. I think okay. it was I just needed to know a number. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So. And, and Danielle Staub was one of the craziest bridezillas ever, I think. She Seriously. was really intense. So, just to review, we have Cordell and Portia, Mike and Jessica, Sheena and Mike. Danielle and Marty, Tom and Luann. Yes, you have the five couples. Now you just got to order them shortest to longest. Shortest to longest. Shortest to One longest. being shortest. Yes. Boy. <laughs> and Boy. they're writing it down on paper, so um, that way they can't cheat. So once everybody's locked in, I'll start with your answers, and then I'll move on to Jessica and Max's. Okay. Like I said, I got really surprised when I actually did the work to look up these dates and count mm-hmm. how long. Okay. So Jessica, you're locked in. I am locked in. I'm, I'm not going to cheat this time. I actually feel that I have something to c- contribute. Okay. I figured you would know, know probably the length of Tom and Luann's and Portia and Cordell's. Oh, is what I, and I was all into Mike and Jessica. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't, yes. I didn't realize Oh, Shaw's baby. I'm all about Shaw's the I first few seasons. I can't wait for Shaw's to come back. The funny thing about Shaw's of Sunset is that our cat legitimately watches Shaw's of Sunset. Like That's she gets hilarious. really excited and she um, will sit right in front of the television. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm okay. Locked in. So Max is locked. Are you locked in, Nora? I'm locked. I had to guess on some of them. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to write down your couples. Okay, so where did you say for one? Uh, Luann and Tom. Okay. And then Danielle and Marty. I'm really just guessing here. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Mike. And then Portia and Cordell. And then Mike and Jessica. Okay. And then. We're going to be all over the place on this one. <laughs> uh, Jessica. Danielle and Marty. Tom and Luann. Sheena and Mike. Jessica and Mike. Cordell and Portia. The suspense okay. is percolating. Max? Um, I have Portia, Cordell, Tom and Luann, Sheena and Mike, Mike and Jessica, and Danielle and Marty. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, this was tougher. And we put the shortest relationships on top? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> oh dear. Um, all right. So, you can you guys all put a check mark in the number if you get it right. Uh-huh. 
Okay. So the first spot, the shortest relationship, Danielle and Marty. They made it four mm. months. Oh, bummer. Whoa. Four months. <laughs> Two spot, Mike and Jessica. Interesting. Whoa. They separated at five months, divorce at eight. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I wrote down six months thinking they were together. Okay, Tom and Luann made it nine months. All right. Okay, here's the here's the really fascinating twist. Portia and Cordell made it twenty two months. Sheena and Mike Shea made it twenty eight months. Get out of here. I know, right? <laughs> And we did this from the time that they were engaged to the time they were married, the time they knew each other. Marriage to divorce. Hmm. You know what we should do? We should do this with all Kim's marriages, too. I would win that game if we did a Kim Kardashian (laughs) and how long she was married to her various husbands. I would win. I didn't look that one up today. Well, you know, it wasn't on brand. We really should have done that. I would win. So, okay. Okay, did anybody get any of them right? I only got Danielle and Marty. I'm so disappointed in myself. And you got one right, too, Nora? No, I'm just saying, yes, yes, she did get one right. (laughs) (laughs) Who was the second one? Danielle and Marty. Uh, The second one was Mike and Jessica. So uh, did you get any right, Max? Nope. Okay, Max. And (laughs) Nora? I don't think I did. Zero percent. (laughs) Actually, you did. You got got Portia and Cordell. Oh, wow. By accident, though. Does that even count? (laughs) It, it does. It does. You, you it does, got them okay. in the four seat. So we actually okay. have, we have a tie for winning today. So Nora and Jessica win our game. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Congratulations. Uh, okay. So one of the things that you're invested in thinking about is memory, grief, and testimony. How is testimony remembrance? And how does this resonate on Bravo's shows and in your own life? Okay. So switching gears, as we started to talk about earlier, um, testimony or self-narrative and grief can both be seen as forms of identity creation. So developing a self-narrative is developing an identity. And the development is constant which is to say like there is not a single unchanging identity that you have that you project out into the world. Um, Identity is always a work in process. It's an ongoing narrative. So not only the testimonials, but the housewives presentations of themselves in life um, and even in their very act of being on the show all compose a life narrative or identity that we can observe over the course of years. Uh, They're all constantly telling us with everything they do and say, you know, this is who I am. So in the case of grief in particular, uh, the griever is developing a narrative of oneself after a loss. A loss can be to a death, of course, uh, but also to a divorce, um, as we just just saw, uh, to a move or to time. So these are all losses we see over and over on the housewives. The loss of youth, ah, the loss of youth, the loss of a younger self, um, probably features in every episode. I think so. In this way, we're frequently watching the housewives develop their identities with as well as without that, with that which they have lost. Um, who are they now without their spouses? Who are they now outside of their marriage or now that they are older? What is the role of their dead partner or their previous marriage or their former self in their life now? Is Sonia Morgan still a Morgan? Um, I think Dorinda has some, some thoughts on that in particular. <laughs> yeah, or even so. you know the way that they have 
argued over the years about whether or not their grief is even the same or can be counted right. the same. Intensely. I think it's fascinating. And particularly because I'm now bringing my own uh, sort of personal observations from my own experience with the death of my husband in 2015 when I was 28 to, to my watching of these shows. Um, I'm constantly seeing uh, grief and memory in, in the motivations and the, the, the speech of these housewives. And I, I also watched a lot of Housewives <laughs> to distract myself over the past four years. But now when I look at everything they say, I'm so curious about, you know, their goals and how they've been shaped by loss. So in my work, which deals with people who are not only suffering from losses of people and places, but who are trying to create new lives for themselves in new places, I always imagine them asking themselves, you know, am I still who I was before? What has changed? What is the same? How can I be both who I was then and who I am now? And these personal, these self-narratives are a key way for historians not only to answer these questions um, or to, to help them answer these questions, but for our historical actors or our housewives to answer them for themselves. And in fact, I guess I'm furthering the argument that the answer is the act of answering. The, the identity is the narrative. Have you written... Um just a personal kind of piece on how you have understood grief in the loss of your husband? Have you used that as yeah. a way to kind of heal or at least get it out? Yeah. So I think the major, major way in which I dealt um, with the loss, but really besides television <laughs> was writing. And I actually wrote kind of a memoir. Or I, I wrote a memoir, my spin on a memoir that tried to, capture who he was to me using vignettes. And it was this idea that um, all of these little pieces made up who he was, but they also could never capture who he was. So playing with that idea. And um, this was this was especially important to me because he was a bit older. And, um, you know, the people I would talk to from different phases of his life would often know a different, a different version of him than I did. And it was very painful to try to reconcile those two versions or those three or four or five versions of him with the person I knew because it, it sort of added losses. You were like, um, you somehow lost a person you never even had. And it was just very difficult. So I, I found it really helpful for me to write down who my husband was and, um, what he meant to me. It really helped me sort of felt like I could hold on to that and make sense of it. Well, 28 is a very young age to, to lose someone. So um, I'm sorry um, that you went through that loss. It sounds like you've found a way to channel it in a way that is healthy for you, right? Because everyone's grief is different. Um, totally, yeah. So let me let me raise us up a little bit, um, or try to. This will probably backfire. <laughs> um, so in season seven of Real Housewives of New York, Carol and Dorinda take a trip to recover the ashes of Carol's husband, Anthony. Doris? Hello. Hey. Look at you in your cozy. You Thank look so you. good. You exhausted? Yeah, but I took a little nap. I'm starving now. Oh, I ordered like just little like tea times, like tea sandwiches, oh, you did? tea, chamomile tea for you. I thought you didn't want to drink. Okay. Yeah. Well, drink. I had some wine. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, well, I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> In a situation like this, where you've just returned with your husband's urn, wine is definitely the preferred drink. <laughs> How was the trip out there? Good. It's and, beautiful uh, out there, right? 
Okay, you know, <laughs> in my mind, yeah. um, it was like, pull up and it was this old thousand year old stone church with moss and ivy and like the bells were ringing. It wasn't that at all. <laughs> what was it like? We just pulled up to what I thought was a house. It's unfortunate the church was not the church of my imagination because that would make for a much better story, but um, I might tell that story anyway. It was it was a little more emotional than, sure. than, than I than I sort of was envisioning in my mind. And then he went to get the urn, which I, I'll show you later. I yeah, don't worry. You know, the minute I saw the urn, I thought such a good picture of him in my head. That's nice. Like alive and vibrant and, you know, is that the food? Okay, probably so we get it. Okay. Oh, hi. It looks nice. Yeah. You have to have one proper tea before we leave. Isn't that pretty? Oh, very nice. Should we do it in the bedroom? Yeah, do you mind? Absolutely. Yeah. But I think we're realizing we're quite comfortable with each other. When you take out all the other girls and you put us together one-on-one, -on -one, we strangely are very similar. Uh, who would have thunk it? So much more civilized. No That's crusts. It. It's not too thick. You don't have to open your mouth too wide to right. get into it. You know, we look like ladies. Exactly. Mm. When was the last time you were here? Over three years ago. Mm. And can I tell you something? To come almost as using you as an excuse to get over, back over here, uh -huh. you know what I mean? Oh, good. I don't know if I would have come back. Because you don't want to be in the place where you were well, last with that's Richard. It. And it was, we came every two months. London's a very small little town, so you can't help but see the ghosts everywhere. So I wasn't really prepared to see the ghosts of Richard, you know, what we used to do and where we used to go. Oh, you would have loved Richard. You don't know, you know. can't tell from a picture, but whoever Richard spoke to, he made them feel like they were the most important person in the room. And he used to teach at Yale once a month. And sometimes I would drive up there with them. And, and sit know, in on the court? Well, because I used to go just to make sure none of the students were gonna take them away from me, because, you know, they all were like, Dr. Bentley, Dr. Bentley. <laughs> Oh, Dr. Bradley, I, I read your whole thesis and blah, 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 and I just think you're so, I'd be like, oh, please give me a break. I knew exactly what they were doing. So I went up there as a protector, okay? Oh, you're hilarious. There is sort of that student professor thing. Yes. A hundred percent. I had so many crushes on my Exactly, professors. you were the type I would have to be afraid no, of. No, no, but I never. I would be like, you know what? Dr. Medley is going home with Mrs. Medley tonight, okay? <laughs> There'll be no reviewing of theses. Whatever's gonna happen, happens right here. Richard loved academia because he was a writer on politics, and I was a professor's wife. How odd is that? Like six months ago, I ran into someone very close to Richard, and I was with John. Like, they were a little pissed off, and I was embarrassed. And I, and I mean, I just, it was like the most awkward thing. Yeah. And actually ruined our whole night, because I felt like in a weird way I was having an affair on Richard. Right. right? Your story changed. So it forces all those other friends to change their story a little too. And, and I find people don't like to change no. so much and they don't know how to deal with Durndon John. How can this people clip can be think used to discuss they want, they the way that narrative and oral history can impart John so much grief, identity, Richard and memory? Medley. And let me just say before you even and answer, loved this was other. one of my favorite <laughs> so, episodes, scenes, segments again, of that in all Housewives history. That's interesting. My good friend was just saying the thing when I told her I'd be talking about this. She goes, oh, I love that episode. So it's interesting that people uh, remember this episode in particular. I wonder what that says, actually. So um, the episode of uh, Real Housewives of New York sums up the argument we've been discussing, Tony Walter's whole argument about grief pretty effectively, I think. 
uh, Carol and Dorinda are both known on the show as widows. Um, we know Carol wrote the book, The Widow's Guide to Sex and Dating, I think. Um, and they're both also constantly engaging with who they are in the wake of these losses. Um, their identities, the, the self-narratives are informed in part by these losses, by the presence and absence of their spouses, uh, by their recreating their identities with as well as without uh, the deceased. So their visit to London, where Dorinda spent loads of time with her late husband Richard and where Carol's late husband Anthony, I think, grew up, uh, brings these narratives front and center for the episode. Uh, both housewives talk about who their husbands were and they affiliate with them in different ways. Uh, Dorinda at one point says, you know, I was a professor's wife. How odd is that? Which to me is demonstrative of how her self-narrative is seeking to reconcile her old self with her new self. And it's still in process. You know, I love that she can be sort of surprised by her own self <laughs> because I feel that way too a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people um, feel that way and it's just it's a constant process of engagement so in general you know carol recovering anthony's ashes provides a pretty tangible way of engaging with these ideas and carol really drives this home when um back in new york city she's telling uh what's the girl's name the yummy yummy tummy girl yeah so she says, you know, strangely having the urn back in my apartment makes me feel complete, like my past life is still a part of my present life. And, you know, she thinks that it, it looks like it should have always been there and she doesn't plan on moving it ever again. And so for me, that really sums up a lot of what we've been talking about today, which is that um, we're constantly seeking ways to incorporate the past with the present and, and keep telling and retelling that narrative of, you know, who we are. And The Housewives, just being a show on television with an audience, really underlines that endeavor. Can I ask a follow-up question? Um, well, I'm going to ask a follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> how do you reconcile in some ways, um, or how should we reconcile, Carol and Dorinda taking this trip, and then I'm immediate fla immediately flashed to Bethy Bethany's kind of breakdown. She she had a breakdown at the restaurant. We It was couched in yeah. yelling at Luann, but... That was also couched in grief. Do you think that that's something that should have been recorded? Or do you think that they should have kept that moment private? Oh, on this last season. On this last season. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've watched. This, no, season, I this would have been like what? Season sorry. 13? Let me catch up. Let me. Sorry. So this is like, you know, fast forward. Bethany um, was in a fight with Luann and she started on vacation. on vacation and she started hyperventilating as she was yelling at Luann and it became very clear that she was also in this moment having a um, a breakdown over the fact that her at one time fiance um, had, had Dennis had Dennis had taken his life. But if you haven't seen it, then you can't respond to it. No, no, I have seen it, and I, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated. I was fascinated by this whole season with Bethany being so immediately in the wake of this major loss. Um, I can't. I don't know in my own mind what I think the politics are of, you know, should this been have recorded or, or, or shown? I don't know what they agreed to. I assume if she felt like she didn't want that on TV, she could have said something, but I don't know. Um, I think assuming she did make some sort of decision to let that air, I really respect that because I think sharing something raw and real and even in some ways hysterical like that is can be really affirming for people 
um, because it's not sanitized or, um, you know, commodified in any way. And I think when you're going through a major experience, say like um, a major loss, to see that you are not alone or that you are not crazy or that this is a process can be profoundly helpful. And so not that Housewives has to serve a public service for anyone, but I really do believe in general in sort of normalizing um, behaviors, I guess, just the, the process of normalization and externalization. And I know when I was grieving the most acutely and I would use social media, there were certainly people I was making sad and I wasn't thinking about it and maybe I should have been. But just the ability to externalize, I think there were certainly people who felt like, thank you for sharing that. You know, I really appreciated um, seeing that, seeing something real and raw, you know, on something like social media or I guess on something like reality television. And so I, I think there's merit there. I think one of the, uh, thank you. Thank you for um, responding yeah. to that. Um, <laughs> at the same time, we have the Bethany and Dennis storyline running. Um, we have for fans of Tony Braxton and Braxton Family Values, another half wife, uh, housewives, if you will, show. We <clears> had the death of Trina's um, one-time husband, Gabe, and Trina chose not to show anything um, on camera. And that was also, for me, just as powerful as, yeah. as, as Bethany, her deciding to turn the cameras off. And when the family could deal with the grief, they had kind of their own memorial for Gabe. So, I mean, I yeah. guess there really isn't any one... Un, we know there's not one right or wrong way to grieve. It's just interesting how television can give us, you know, options that mirror our own experiences. So yeah, thank you for sharing. Right. Yeah. No, I'm just, that's really interesting to me that turning the cameras off can be just as powerful and evocative. And it is saying something and not saying something. And I think that's an interesting point. So there's two things that I, that your conversation has really got me thinking about. I think maybe part of the reason this particular season seven narrative of Carol and Dorinda's friendship and their trip to London is that this is that moment where they really truly become close friends because of their grief and, right. and, and their shared experience and this ability to connect to each other in a way that mm -hmm. they can't necessarily connect to other female friends. But I feel like this kind of closeness that Carol and Dorinda displayed in season seven and similarly that Dorinda and Bethany um, really had in this last season of New York you know with them walking around and and them talking about kind of signs from the beyond and everything that these are such genuine and raw moments that really contrast to other characters other other women that they're on screen with at the same time so if you go back to season seven and you have Kristen right and her tagline was I'm dumb but I'm pretty or something like that right, right? <laughs> but like but there's like this level of like you know it's fake and you know it's not genuine and so it's like all of this fakeness that surrounds and all of a sudden like you're just like kind of almost like a waterfall coming over you with that kind of very raw and true and real sincere emotion mm -hmm. and in the same mm -hmm. way even this last season with Bethany and Dorinda right it's such a contrast to everything going on in like <laughs> the Sonia and like Tinsley world which is like just totally like I have no idea what's going on any day of the week <laughs> <laughs> and and so I feel like that might be part of the appeal but then this also got me thinking about a recent um 
conversation that Stephen Colbert had with Anderson Cooper. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Colbert um, was really calling on people to constantly talk and to remember, talk about and remember loss and, and the people that you've lost. And, and he was talking about losing his dad and his brothers when he was a kid. But I feel like maybe this call that he issued should also apply to generations of people living post-genocide, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, in these communities that have experienced loss right and as you say like the armenian genocide didn't just take lives right it took people's right. past the present and their future yeah I, I don't know what else to say i'm from a culture where everything should be recorded but i think recording loss is it's hard i mean it can be generative in terms of people can express through art or or writing as you did nora but i think figuring out how to um document pain and trauma is 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 very hard it's hard and i think also like kind of we're discussing hitting the right tone can be difficult because i'm inclined to laugh always and i don't see a problem necessarily with laughing in the middle of talking about the genocide but i can also see how this is going to be recorded forever and i don't necessarily want my giggles (laughs) um you know to be there right alongside these topics but i but I also do want them to be there. And so it is a really complicated um, situation. But in general, I think I also subscribe to this idea of, you know, putting it out there and, and having these conversations because if everything is a process, then this is part of that process. Listen, I'm, I'm a scholar of slavery and I interject jokes all mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> that's how I, that's how I can cope. That's how I can cope right. with doing the kind of work that I do. This podcast is how mm-hmm. I cope. So again, there right. isn't any one right or wrong way. Um, it's, you know, however one gets to, to healthy really, or right. whatever right. that looks like. Has, totally. your, has your research and writing about the Armenian genocide through your grandfather's memoirs and the work you did, um, after your husband passed, has this been way, like, what has this process been like for you as a scholar, especially talking about like kind of this intersection with like your own personal family history and, and historical, um, you know, events? Yeah. I mean, I think the honest answer is for me that it, it doesn't actually feel as dark as it sounds because for me, it's the source of my creativity, I guess. And so, you know, my history for me is a, is a way in which I'm creative and engaging with my husband's death has, especially in the beginning, was, a, was, was generative. I mean, it was awful and the worst I've ever felt, but it was, I turned it into something generative, generative, which is how I dealt with it. And so to me, you know, I, I was an anxious kid who was always thinking about you know, death and like the meaning in life. And so these are not new thoughts to me. And in some ways it's nice now as an adult and not a child to have actually modes of dealing with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Nora, tell us what's next for you. What are you working on and how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? So for the next few years, I'll be writing a dissertation on um, an Ottoman Armenian immigrant named Christopher Oskanyan, who came to New York City uh, basically 100 years before my great-grandfather did, um, 
you know, and he, he came from Turkey, from Istanbul, whereas my great-grandfather came from sort of the, the middle of Turkey. And I'll be talking about Christopher Oskanian's use of American media forms in the Civil War era. So he's a pretty interesting guy who was friends with people like Abraham Lincoln and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he even married uh, an American woman from a pretty prominent family in the late 1830s, which to me feels really early for a, <laughs> a relationship like that. Um, additionally, later this fall, I'll have a second article on my great-grandfather's memoir coming out um, about the ways in which he wrote to return to the homeland he lost. And that will be published in uh, the journal Memory Studies as well. So you can read about both my great-grandfather and Christopher Oskanian on my academia page, or you can contact me directly at uh, my email address, which is lessers, L-E-S-S-E-R-S, at post.harvard.edu. Don't you just hate it when they give you an email that's not your full name and people get really confused. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they like, to, like they, here at UCI, they could have given me my entire last name and instead they misspelled my last name and gave me the first letter of my first name. And so people <laughs> never know how to actually spell my last name and it really confuses people. And it, you know, I just, I love that how that happens to so us at the much. university. <laughs> I've just, I have, I, Casey has been in my seminar. That explains so much and they'll tell me I've been emailing you like well I've been emailing you and it's like yeah well you've been using you know the wrong spelling because they misspelled my last name on the email that's awful (laughs) well thank you so much for being here with us today thank you guys so much for having me thank you for tuning in to another episode of historians on housewives As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, blog post, and you can send us questions and feedback about an episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And remember that we live tweet Sunday through Thursday. Thank you to Nora Lesserson. This show was brought to you with support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberpour, Jed Merlaski, Pete Murray, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Laura Lauper, Kim Bettendorf, Louis Osio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Well, I'd like to lighten this up and do our Please Bravo do. News update. Dun, 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 dun. That's my news coming in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we gathered that. Okay. Now so. that, like, you've actually broken me a little bit, and I'm a li- like, the, the compartmentalization walls are a little tumbling down. You're, you're getting like, a little tar. raw, too, now. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting a little raw. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.